You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. It has been a wild political season unlike any other uh, in this country. Um, I have strong opinions uh, on the candidates and strong opinions on the issues that were presented as well, but for the most part I have kept those to myself. And I did that in part because I realized very early on that no matter what I say, I'm going to alienate someone. I'm going to make someone angry um, regarding my uh, position. Uh, They're going to be offended either because of my insensitivity or because of my lack of common sense or whatever it may be. And so uh, you may have noticed also in our worship services over the past uh, month or so that we have not deviated from the book of Ephesians. I have not stopped and said, hey, we need to have a sermon, especially for the election season or whatever it may be, to help you vote uh, properly or whatever it may be, but we didn't do that. And the reason that I didn't do that is because above all else, America does not need conservative politicians. America does not need uh, pro-life Supreme Court justices America does not even need, above all else, uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade or to overturn same-sex marriage. Above all else, America needs Jesus. America needs Jesus. It's as simple as that. And that's why we preach the way that we do, because at the end of the day, your political affiliation or your stance on this issue or that issue doesn't mean anything if you don't know Jesus. It doesn't matter. And so we don't preach a Republican platform here. We don't preach a Democratic platform here. We preach Jesus and him crucified for the sins of the world. That's what we preach. You may have heard me say this before, and I'll repeat it again. If um, same-sex marriage was overturned tomorrow, if abortion was overturned and uh, deemed illegal in this country, it would not change the hearts of people. It wouldn't do that. You cannot legislate morality, right? People wouldn't, you know, say, oh, I can't marry my same-sex partner anymore, therefore I guess I'll embrace Jesus. They're just not going to do that, right? That's not what happens, and so we can't legislate morality. The only one that can make us right with Jesus is the Holy Spirit working through the gospel. He's the only one who can do that. And so that's why we preach, and that's why we will continue to preach until they physically stop us. And that may happen one day, but we'll continue to preach Jesus. Here in Ephesians, uh, we've been looking at the monumental blessings that have been given to us uh, in Christ Jesus. Blessings such as we have been made holy and blameless before God. Blessings such as that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we have the right to be called sons and daughters of God. That is absolutely astounding. And I'll tell you, I struggled uh, this week in putting together this sermon for the simple fact that this uh, topic uh, of redemption is beyond us. It is so, it fills the pages of the Old and New Testament. There is so much in here, and that's why we'll not just spend one week, but we'll spend two weeks talking about this. 
Redemption is such a wonderful, powerful word. What it implies, it implies this. It implies total weakness and helplessness on the person who is in bondage. And it implies great sacrifice on the part of the one who is securing that release from that bondage. And that's what we're going to see today. Redemption is the theme of the entire Bible. In fact, my first year in seminary, uh, one of my professors said that you could rename the Bible God's story of redemption. And that's really what it is. From the beginning all the way to the end, it is God seeking to redeem his people. So let's uh, uh, read this passage Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. We'll pray for guidance and then we'll jump right in. This is the very word of God. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This ends the reading of God's word. There's a whole lot in here. Let's look to him for guidance. Father, we come to you. This is your word. This should be handled with great care and great precision. I've done study this week, Lord, but as a fallen human being, I know that I am capable of messing it up. And so I pray that that would not happen. I pray that your message of your salvation would come through loud and clear. And Holy Spirit, we ask you right now to come here and to remove every single distraction in this place. Satan is here. His his demonic forces are here right now trying to convince people that what's going to go on this afternoon is more important or this week or that what I'm talking about is garbage and it's, it's not real. And we just pray that you would silence him and we pray that if there's anyone who doesn't know you that you would open their heart, Lord, to see the beauty of this biblical truth of redemption. And we just pray this, we beg of you. In the name of Jesus, amen. There's a story told about a a small boy who loved uh, to sail and he loved uh, the water. And one day he decided to, uh, to make his own little boat. And so he got a, a big piece of wood and he carved it and, and uh, sanded it down and painted it. And it was just beautiful. And he, he spent uh, hours and hours and weeks and months making this boat. And then he took it down to this massive lake for its, its maiden voyage. And he was so excited about it. And he was, uh, it was floating around. And then a strong wind came and it took the boat away. And he followed it for as long as he could and hoping that it would blow towards the shore, but it never did. And it finally went out of his sight. And he was sad. He was depressed. And so every day he would get up and he would walk along the shore for as long as he could, seeing maybe it blew up. Maybe it came ashore somewhere. But then weeks passed and months passed and over a year passed and he never saw the boat. Until one day he was in town And he came across this toy shop and he saw there in the window his beautiful boat that he had made. And he ran into the store with so much excitement and said, Mr. Mr. That boat in the window, that's my boat. And the man said, 
it can be your boat if you give me the cost of it, if you pay for it. No, 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 you don't understand. And the man would not listen. He said, no, I got that from a fisherman. I paid good money for it. You can have it if you give me the price of it. And so the boy went home and he worked and worked and worked and he finally earned enough money and he ran back to the shop and he purchased the boat. And as he was walking out, clutching this boat in his arms, he said this, now you are doubly mine. I made you and now I've bought you back. In the very beginning, God created Adam and Eve, our first parents, and he created them perfectly with no sin whatsoever, but they rebelled against him. And when they did that, they plunged the entire world into slavery to sin. That's what they did. The result is, as, as John says in 1 John five nineteen, that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. And anyone who has eyes to see can see that this world is messed up. It is messed up. All you need to do is turn on the news for any length of time. All you have to do is walk out your front door and you can see that this world is messed up. Not an hour goes by in this country or in this world where there's not one country that's fighting against another country and there's a ton of bloodshed being made. Not one hour goes by in this country where one family is not on the verge of breaking up and splitting up forever. Not one hour goes by where a person is not murdered or raped or, or where a friendship is about to end or that one person's selfish acts is going to destroy the life of someone else. Sin is what causes all of this. I don't think that Adam and Eve had the slightest clue as to what their one act of rebellion would do to the world and what it would unleash on the world. Every murder, every broken family, every failed class in school, every debilitating disease, every abused child, every sex trafficked child, every verbal or physical fight is the result of that one act of rebellion against God. With that one act of rebellion, they unleashed hell on the world. And the reason I say this is because hell is ultimately separation from God. That's what hell is. Sin separates us from God. And now that is a reality in the world. The result is that all of us, every single person in here, comes into this world as an enemy of God and sold into bondage to sin. You may not feel like that, but that's exactly the situation. And this is why redemption is so very beautiful and why I hope I can communicate this magnet, uh, this wonderful truth of the word of God. Verse 7 again says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This word that is used here is used several times in the New Testament and it means to let go free for a ransom. To let go free for a ransom. It is the recalling of captive sinners from the captivity of sin through the payment of a ransom for them. Before we get into the New Testament references, I want to take you back um, to uh, near the beginning of the Bible, Exodus, uh, which is the second book in the Old Testament. The book of Exodus records the exodus of the people of God out of the land of Egypt. That's why it's called Exodus. Uh, the exodus is an actual historical event that took place in time and space. 
but it points to a greater spiritual truth of being delivered from the bondage of sin into the family of God. The story actually begins in Genesis 37. You don't have to turn there, but it begins with a man by the name of Joseph, who because of the jealousy of his brothers is sold into slavery and taken down into Egypt. While he is in Egypt, he absolutely flourishes. And as a result of God being with him, he saves the known world at that time. Eventually, his whole family comes down to Egypt, and they flourish as well. Until a pharaoh, a king arises that does not know Joseph, that does not like the people. He's nervous about the people, and he takes them and makes all of them, all of the Hebrew people, slaves. And so they go from being treated very well to being in bondage to cruel slavery. After hundreds of years of this slavery, God raises up a deliverer in the person of Moses. And he sends him to Pharaoh to tell him to let God's people go. And the language that is used for this deliverance is the language of redemption. Redemption. I want you to see this. So Exodus chapter 6 is the first place that we'll be. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. There we see God's message to his people. Listen to the I wills in here. Says this, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." Now I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 15, verse 13. Exodus chapter 6 took place before they were actually delivered, and God is making that promise. And now God has delivered on that promise, and afterwards in Exodus chapter 15, the people are on out of the land of Egypt, and Moses writes a song, and here's some of the lyrics to that song. Here's what he says. Exodus 15, 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And he's saying, thank you for redeeming us. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Chapter 7, verse 8. The people at this point are on the brink of entering into the promised land. And Moses takes some time to remind them of all that God has done for them. And here's what he says. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There we have it again, that language of 
redemption. He has redeemed you. This is repeated five more times in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 9, verse 26. Chapter 13, verse 5. Chapter 15, verse 5. Chapter 21, verse 8. And then finally in chapter 24, verse 18, which I'm going to read. And he says this, and they all say basically the same thing, but you see that repetition. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. So this physical deliverance, this physical redemption, as I said before, points to a greater deliverance, a spiritual redemption that would take place when in the fullness of time, God would send his son into the world to redeem his people from the slavery of sin. There are several New Testament passages that point to this, uh, that point to the fact that we are slaves to sin. That language is intentional here. You don't have to turn here. You can listen. Uh, uh, John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus speaking, he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 20 says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You and I were slaves to sin. And as such, we were separated from God. Never forget that. That's what sin does. We were separated from God. We were objects of his wrath and destined to an eternity away from him in a place that the Bible calls hell, which is what we deserve for our sins. Thankfully, that is not where the story ends, right? Uh, Your slaves, too bad. No, because something happened. And so let's move into the New Testament and see this amazing redemption. And what I want to do is I want to first look at a word, the word ransom. Uh, because it is used several times in regard to our redemption. And we get what a ransom is, right? A ransom is a payment given to someone for the release of someone else. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus states the purpose for which he came into this world. And here's what he says, Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came into this world, to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul and Peter, picking up on this theme as well, uh, use the same language. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, here's what he says. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's that language of ransom. Payment had to be made, and therefore Jesus gave the payment, and it was his own life. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, uses the same language. And here's what he says. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
Now, as soon as you hear that language, that last line as a lamb, it should take you back to the Old Testament once again, to particularly the book of Exodus chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 12, we have the final plague, the final of the 10 plagues that God brought on the land of Egypt. And the final plague, uh, so we had the final plague and the institution of what is known as the Passover. And so the story goes like this. God had brought these nine plagues with no intention of Pharaoh ever letting the people go because God wanted to bring this final plague. And so God says, here's what you're going to do. You are going to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and you're going to bring it into your home and you're going to treat it like one of your children. And then everyone at the same time is going to take that lamb and they are going to kill it. And you are going to take the blood of that lamb, that spotless lamb, and you're going to smear it on the door. And you're going to take that lamb and you're going to eat it. And there's so much symbolism in there that we can't get into right now. But here's the point. Because God said, I'm going to go through the whole land of Egypt, throughout all of the Egyptians' houses and throughout all of the people of Israel's houses. And I am going to strike down the firstborn of everyone in those houses. The only way that you can avoid this punishment is if the blood is on the door. Because when I see the blood, I will pass over that house and will not bring harm there. It was the blood of the spotless lamb that brought salvation to the firstborn. You can almost say that the firstborn was redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That is what saved them because God would destroy the firstborn of every house without exception. I trust that you can see from the first Peter passage that we read the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament because the blood of the lamb in the Old Testament brought salvation just like the blood of the lamb Jesus in the New Testament brings Salvation. When Jesus came on the scene, uh, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is intentional. That's an intentional title. And if you read the book of Revelation, Jesus is, uh, appears as a lamb slain. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians that our Passover lamb has been slain. Jesus is our Passover lamb the theme of redemption in Jesus is seen throughout the New Testament. I just want to look at a few passages. The first is in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. If you want to turn there, uh, you can. The situation is that Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth have been praying for a child for years, and now they're old, and there's no way that they're going to have kids anymore. But God says, nope, you are going to. And so God, through a miraculous birth, um, she conceives in her old age, and her and Zacharias have a child, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner. And uh, I, uh, Zacharias, because he didn't believe God, was, uh, he w couldn't speak for a period of time. But when uh, his son John was born— and he gave him that name. His mouth was open and he immediately began to prophesy. And here's what he says regarding his son, but more importantly about the one who would come, uh, the Messiah, Jesus. He says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God's redemption is finally here in the person 
of Jesus. I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This is one of my favorite verses. My favorite verse is um, uh, Psalm 1611, but this uh, is definitely in my top five. I love this verse because it encapsulates the gospel in one verse. <clears throat> Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I love that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To be cursed means to be separated from God. It means to have God turn his face away from you and not look at you with pleasure. He is turning away from you. That is the condition of all of us that come into this world. But Jesus willingly became a curse, willingly had the Father turn his face away from him so that the Father would turn his face towards us. Jesus became a curse for us. We are twice his. He made us, and now he has bought us back. I want you to turn over, if you're in Galatians chapter 3, turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, verses 3 through 7. Paul here says the same thing. And he really, if you've been paying attention or if you've read uh, Ephesians chapter 1, you see that in this passage in Galatians chapter 4, he sums up everything that we've learned so far in Ephesians 1 and that we will learn in the upcoming weeks. Uh, here's what he says. Galatians chapter 4, 3 through 7. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We see from these verses that we were all enslaved to sin, but that we were redeemed by Jesus' blood. We were welcomed into the family of God, and we were given an inheritance, promised an inheritance. People, these are amazing, amazing truths that I'm sure if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard them over and over again, and they could just go in one ear and out the other. Take some time this week. Take some time today to meditate on what this means, that you have been redeemed, that you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Finally, I want you to turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Here Paul tells us uh, one of the reasons, one of the purposes for which God redeemed us. I don't know if you were listening while we were reading one of the passages in the Old Testament. It says that you are redeemed, therefore listen to what I'm saying. Um, he's calling us to obedience. And, and Paul really in Titus 2 uh, brings that out. He says this, Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As I mentioned before, sin is what separates us from 
God. Sin is what separates us from one another. My sin separates me from you. Your sin separates you from me. My sin separates me from God. And that's why we were redeemed. We were redeemed so that sin would be done away with. We were redeemed for the purpose that we would not sin anymore. We can't be redeemed from something and then run right back into it. We were redeemed from sin so that we would sin no more. God was intent on breaking down the walls of separation between us and him and between us and each other as well. We have been redeemed so that we could be God's own possession and that we would be a people that are zealous, eager to do good works, to say, God, what does it mean to do good for you and for my neighbor? Show me that and I'll do it. I want to do it because of all that you've done for me. Jesus has redeemed us by shedding his blood for us, resulting in the forgiveness of our sins, thus breaking down the dividing wall between us and God. I want to close today um, by giving two illustrations that I believe beautifully illustrate uh, this, this beautiful idea of redemption. One is fictitious and one is from actual life. I've used both of these before, uh, but they bear repeating just because they really do communicate what redemption is. The first is from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, many are familiar with this. There's a powerful scene in the movie uh, where Edmund has betrayed his family. He's betrayed Narnia. Um, he was seduced by the white witch, uh, and now he is a, has a change of heart, and he's come into the camp of Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus. He comes into the camp, and he's seeking forgiveness, and he is welcomed into the camp. And all is going well as they're celebrating until the white witch comes into the camp. And she looks at Aslan and she says, you have a traitor in the camp. You have a traitor in the camp. And Aslan says, his offense was not against you. And she says, have you forgotten the laws on, upon which Narnia was built? And he says, I am very familiar with those laws. I was there when they were written. And she says, then you will remember that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is mine. And if there is not blood, then all of Narnia will be overturned and perish. And then she looks at Edmund and says, he will die on the stone table. Edmund is helpless. He is a slave to the witch because of his, his subjection to her, because of uh, his fall. He's a slave to the witch. He's helpless. At this point, Aslan asks for a private conversation with the witch, and they go into the tent, and it's tense, and they're in there for a while, and everyone's wondering what's going on. And then he emerges after a long time, and he announces to the crowd, he says this, the witch has renounced her claim on Edmund. And there's just a cheer in the camp that Edmund is free and all is well except for with Aslan. Aslan is troubled. And if you've seen the movie or read the books, you know why he is troubled. Because Aslan knows that blood is required. And Aslan has struck a deal with 
the witch to where he will give his blood in place of Edmund's blood. He will die on the stone table so that Edmund does not have to die on that table. This is a perfect example of the redemption that we have in Jesus. And this is what C.S. Lewis intended as well. It shows one life in place of another, and the other goes free. The other story comes from real-life example, and it comes in the form of a man by the name of Oscar Schindler. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Schindler's List. I cannot recommend it uh, in a church setting. If you've seen it, it's a great movie, but it's a really horrible movie as well. It's very graphic. It's about the Nazi Holocaust. Um, And like I said, very graphic. Uh, But there's a man by the name of Oscar Schindler who the story is based on, and he is a wealthy, wealthy man. He's a member of the Nazi party. He owns a munitions plant where he is making ammunition uh, for the Nazi party as they are fighting in World War II. And everything is going well. He is living the high life. He's just enjoying life. Things could not be better until one day he witnesses the atrocities that are going on against the Jewish people, the murder of them, the torture of them, and it wrecks his life. It changes his life completely. And now the only thing that he can think of is how to save these people. And so he intentionally and secretly starts to fight against the Nazi party. He miscalibrates all of the machines in his, in his plant so that none of them produce anything that can be used in the war, anything that's useful in the war. And then he starts to compile a list, a list of Jewish people, some of whom he knows and others that he doesn't know. And this list is for the purpose of him buying them as his workers. He owns them. And he meticulously, after this list is done, he starts to purchase them. And he ends up purchasing between 11 and 1,200 of them. And by the time he is done, he has no money whatsoever. Nothing. He has given it all to purchase these people that no one else can touch because he now owns them. And there's a powerful, powerful scene at the end of the movie as he's standing there in the midst of these 1,200 people that he has saved and the war is about to end. And he says this to them. He says, I have to flee because I am a a member of the Nazi party and they will come, uh, the, the allies will come and hunt me and try me for war crimes because they don't know what, what he's done. Therefore, I have to leave at midnight. And he's standing there in the midst of them, all these people, and they come in an appreciation to them. They give him a gold ring that they made, and it's got Hebrew on it, just talking about saving lives. And he gets this ring, and he leans into his good friend, <clears throat> and he says, I could have done more. I could have done more. I could have got more out. And his friend says, look around. There's 1,200 people who are alive because of what you did. But Oscar Schindler objects, and with a quiver in his voice, he says, I could have, I could have made more money. 
He says, I've wasted so much money. If you would have known how much money I wasted, I could have made more money. I could have got more out. And his friend says, no. He says, generations will go on because of what you have done here. And he objects again. And at this point in the movie, he loses it completely. And he breaks down and he's crying. And he points to the car that he will make his getaway in. And he says, this car, this car, that's 10 more people. Why did I hold on to this car? Why didn't I not sell it? There's 10 more people. And then he takes a, a pin off of his lapel and he says, this, this pin, th- that's two more people. This is real gold. That's two more people. And he says, or, or at least one, at least one more person. I could have bought one more person. He says, I could have done more. I could have done more, but I didn't. I didn't. This is a man who gave everything away to save people. And it's a beautiful story of redemption, of buying someone out of cruel slavery and certain death and giving them life. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins We have truly been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, behold your great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate price of his own blood so that your blood would not be required. And if you're here today and you have given your life to Jesus, if you're in his family— Please take some time today or this week to say thank you. Thank you. I know that I don't say it enough. Thank you. Because what happens when we hear this stuff over and over again? Like I said before, it goes in one ear and out the other. It says, oh yeah, that's what Jesus did. No, he saved your life. He saved you from eternal punishment away from him and invites you into his presence where there is fullness of joy. That's what he has done. He is your great redeemer. And if you're not here, if you're here today and you have not given your life to Jesus, realize that the blood that he shed for you can ransom you from your current slavery to sin. And you can, you can embrace Jesus as your great redeemer as well and sing his praises forever and ever. This is what redemption is. You and I were slaves and he bought us back to be his own possession. Let's pray. Father, all we can say is, wow, we take this for granted so very often, Lord. We're not blown away by it anymore. It's, yeah, that's what happened. I pray that you would remind us of the magnitude of this, that you would remind me personally, that you would blow me away this week as I contemplate this, as I think about this. I pray that you would remind me that you paid an amazing, a high, high price. The price of the blood of your very own son, his life in place of mine, so that I could be with you. And I look at myself and say, why? Why? And so I do pray, as I prayed at the beginning, Holy Spirit, there are people here, I would imagine, that don't know you. And I pray that they would see Jesus as their beautiful Redeemer, and that they would embrace him before they leave this place. We thank you so much for these truths, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.